All right, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23 this morning. Let me say what a blessing it is to have all of you here today. I know we got some visitors here and we're thankful that you're here. We hope you were made to feel at home. If anybody said anything rude or unkind to you, I don't know those people. All right, so don't hold me accountable for that. I always have to say that around our folks. Somebody say amen. But we, no, we're thankful that you're here today. Hope you've been made to feel at home in the Lord's house and trust that you have. We're honored by your presence today and thankful for all those that are here in the Lord's house. Luke chapter number 23. I'm going to do something I don't normally do, and that's in reading our text. I'm going to jump over a few verses for time's sake, uh, but uh, we're going to begin reading in verse number 1. We're going to read verses 1 and 2, then we'll jump down to verse 13 uh, and read more of the Word of God. Luke chapter 23, uh, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that we're in the crucifixion story. And the Bible says in verse number 1, And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate, led Jesus to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now Pilate examines him, and verse 13 says that Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. Isn't that amazing? Saying he's an innocent man, but I'm going to chastise him just the same. It says in verse 17, For of necessity he, Pilate, must release one unto them at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, away with Jesus, and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. The Bible also tells us he was a robber as well. He was a thief. The Bible says in verse 20, Pilate therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, Why? What evil hath he done? I found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison whom they had desired. But he delivered Jesus to their will. And as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Now let's pick up verse 33. We'll read this one verse and pray. When they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the male factors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Let's pray together. Father, we love you, Lord. What a blessing it is to get to come into your house and to worship with God's people, Lord, and to get to rejoice together. And Lord, to be able to come in today and not just for the purpose of worship and not just to rejoice, but Lord, also to hear your word, for it to prick our hearts, to convict us, to deal with us directly, and that the sweet Holy Ghost might have liberty today to speak to us and to our need, our spiritual deficiencies. Lord, that He might show us if there's anything in our life that is not right with Thee. Lord, I, there could be someone who surprise me in a group this size that's never been saved. And if they died, they die in their sins with no hope and no help. But Lord, there's hope and help for them this morning while they're living, while they draw a breath. If they'll turn to Christ, they can be saved and they can be born again. And I pray that You'd show them that clearly this morning and that they'd believe on your Son. And I pray that you deal with each of us according to thy will, that we might be made more into the image 
of Your dear Son. Lord, we love You and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I remember a few years ago, I guess it's been more than a few years ago, I said something about this in a message the other day. When you're in the South and someone says the other day, that could mean anything from a week ago to four decades ago. I can't remember exactly when it was. I don't keep up with this stuff. To be honest, it didn't make a huge impact on me, but uh, several years back, uh, they came out with that movie, The Passion of the Christ. I'm sure some of you know it and probably saw it. And that was directed, of course, by Mel Gibson. I have no reason to believe Mel Gibson is a saved man. I know he is a religious man as regards uh, the world's concept of religion. I have no reason to believe he was a saved man. Uh, But when he made that movie, he got into a lot of trouble. I don't know if you remember this. He got into a lot of trouble because he came out and he said it was the Jews that crucified Jesus. And there was a lot of people got upset about that. You know, my preacher, you say this, you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, it's the one that gets hit that yelps. Amen. And uh, they were discussing who really was it that was responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. Why was Jesus crucified? And Mel Gibson came out and he said, well, it was the Jews that crucified Jesus. I want to say he was right. Any honest student of the Bible, you can't read the Bible without understanding that the Jews told the lies and held the malice in their hearts for Jesus to be crucified. The Bible tells me that Pilate did as they required. They wanted him crucified. Of course, I also find it convenient that Mel Gibson, a Roman Catholic, somehow, Brother Charlie, amazingly missed all those Romans in the crucifixion story as well, didn't he? Isn't that interesting, right? He, uh, he somehow missed all those Romans involved, him being a part of the uh, religious uh, military state that is descended from the Roman Empire. Isn't that amazing that he somehow missed that in all that? And so some people say, well, preacher, you know, was it the Jews? And I'd say, yes, it was. Others would say, well, wasn't it the Romans that nailed him to the cross? I'd say, yeah, yeah, Brother Ken, absolutely the Romans nailed him to the cross. I've heard preachers say this, and I've said it myself, you know, all of the uh, all of the deception and spite of the Jews, all of the military power and injustice of Rome could not have put them on, him on that cross had he not been willing to go. The question is not just why did they crucify Jesus, but why did Jesus allow Himself to be crucified? And people have often said, and I'd say a hearty amen to this, they say, well, it was your sin and my sin that put Him on the cross. I say amen to that this morning. Hey, it was your hand that held the hammer. Uh, It was my hand that held the nail. It was our hands that plunged the crown of thorns over top of his head. I mean, listen, when I see that big Roman soldier with that cat of nine tails laying open and bare the flesh of the Son of God, when I look closer, his face looks like my face. His voice sounds like my voice. Hey, certainly it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. People say, preacher, was it sinners? Yes, it was sinners. But then when I read my Bible in John chapter 3, I'm told that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You know, even with all the sin uh, dead of mankind, had Jesus not been willing to go and had God the Father not been willing to send Him, they could have never put Him on that cross. And so the question being this, preacher, who crucified Jesus? Was it the Jews? Yes. Yes, it was. Was it the Romans? Yes. Yes, indeed it was. Was it sinners that crucified Him? In other words, your sin dead and mine? Yes, absolutely it was. Was it God that crucified Jesus? Absolutely it was. The Bible says that that the Lord sent Him there in your place and in my place. He gave. It wasn't His Son wasn't taken from Him. He gave His sons. In fact, I think we could accurately say this morning that it was Jewish lies and Roman nails that put Him on the cross. We could say it was the load of sin and it was the love of God that sent Him to Calvary. But you know, I think reading our text this morning, there's an even more distinct answer that we can give. I don't know if you noticed it, but I want you to notice it now. Look at verse 25. 
The Bible says this, He released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison. That's Barabbas, whom they desired. Then notice what it says here. The Bible says, But he, Pilate, delivered Jesus to their will. Could I say to you this morning, Jesus was delivered up to the Jews. He was delivered up to the Romans. He was delivered up to bear the load of sin. He was delivered up because of the love of God. But I think we can scripturally say this morning that He was delivered up to the will of man. And it was the will of man that put Him on the cross. You remember what John chapter number 1 says about the will of man? It says in John chapter 1 verse 10 about Jesus that He was in the world and the world was made by Him and the world knew Him not. He came unto His own and His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born not of blood, listen now, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, my Bible tells me that mankind has a will. And when I read in Luke chapter 23, what I find is that yes, the Jews, yes, the Romans, yes, the sin debt, yes, the love of God. But whenever He was delivered up, He was delivered over to the will of man. And the Bible says they did with Him what they would. And when I read this passage of Scripture this morning, this gives me a fresh perspective because it makes me to understand this truth that in your life and mine, if we yield to our will instead of His will, we're going to do some of the same things that they did. In fact, let me make a statement to you, and I want you to listen carefully to this. There are only two stations in a person's relationship with Jesus Christ. You know that your relationship with Christ is a personal one, right? It it, it ain't mine and my wife's and Jesus' relationship. It it, it ain't mine and my children's and Jesus' relationship. It ain't mine and my mama's or mine and my daddy's. Hey, listen, you've heard me say it before, but God ain't got no grandchildren. Either you have been born again and have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, or you are lost and undone and on your way to hell. You say, preacher, that's harsh. No, hey, that's compassionate. Only when you know where you're headed can you avoid it. And once you realize that that's your condition, you even realize likewise that you don't have to die and go there. A person has a personal relationship with Christ or they don't have a relationship at all. So now, think about this with me. There's only two people really involved in my relationship with Christ, Him and me. And think about this statement. There are only two stations in a person's relationship with Christ. There is a cross and there is a throne. If Christ is to be on the throne, then we must be on the cross. And if we are to be on the throne, then Christ must be on the cross. You say, preacher, what was Calvary all about? That was Jesus leaving His throne to climb on a cross. A cross that you and I deserve, friend, so that we could climb down from that cross and be seated together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You say, preacher, what is the Christian life? There's books wrote, I mean thousands, probably uh, hundreds of thousands every year trying to describe the Christian life. Uh, there's uh, there's uh, preachers and speakers and, and uh, you know, expositors that get up and wax. Po- Can I tell you what the Christian life is? The Christian life is when you then look and say, he's had his time on the cross and I've been on the throne. Now it's time for me to give him the throne and for me to take up my cross and to follow him. You see, we have here a mutually exclusive reality. If He is not on the throne in our life, if He is not governing our life and guiding our life, if we are not submitting our will to His will, then we are sitting on the throne and we are taking His will and His authority and putting it back on the cross. 
And can I say to you, listen, church member, <laughs> he don't belong on the cross anymore. He belongs on the throne. I want you to notice a few thoughts this morning, and I'm going to preach them and, and get out of the way, and, and uh, you've already heard good singing and everything, and I, I just want to please the Lord. So let me make a few statements this morning, and then we'll be done. I want you to think about this question. What happens when Jesus is delivered up to our will? What happens when we choose our will above Him? When our will gets its way and He does not. When I read this story, what I'm really reading is a group of men that got their way instead of giving the Lord Jesus His name. But now listen, somebody's going to say, but preacher, He wanted to go to the cross. I'm aware of that. You say, preacher, uh, He set His face like a flint towards Jerusalem. Listen, I'm aware of that. But the Bible also says He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down on the right hand of the throne of God. I promise you this, we could try to unpack all of the nuances of the mystery of the will of God as regards Calvary and the Jews and the Gentiles. But suffice it to say, there was not a moment of Calvary's torture that was pleasant for the Lord Jesus. There was not a moment of Calvary's pain that was pleasant for the Lord Jesus. He went to that cross because man said, I'll have my way instead of yielding to Him and letting Him have His way. Well, what does that involve? in a person's life. Notice a few thoughts with me. Number one, we just read it in verses one and two. You might have even read past it. But whenever they sought to crucify Jesus, whenever they sought to deliver Him up to their will, there was something they had to do first in order to accomplish this. Look with me back at verses one and two. The Bible says, the whole multitude of them arose and led Him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse Him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that He Himself is Christ the King. Let me say number one this morning. When we deliver Jesus up to our will instead of delivering our will up to Him, the first thing that they sought to do and the first thing that we will do is defame Him. So what do you mean, preacher? They slandered Him. They accused Him. They lied about Him. They criticized Him. They took all that He was and all that He had done and all that He promised and all that He felt and all the love that He had and they ran it through the mud and they painted it as something that was scandalous. This has a twofold application. To embrace our will above Christ's authority, we must defame Him. And I'll say a word about that in a moment. But number two, by embracing our will, Above Christ's authority, we are defaming Him. You say, preacher, how does that work? Well, listen, if they was going to crucify Him, they had to condemn Him first. But by condemning Him, they were leading Him only onto a path of crucifixion. This is why your flesh and my flesh has to try to knock God down in our estimation, in our eyesight, in our love, in our affection, if our will and our flesh is going to have its way above God's way. It's interesting the threefold charge they make towards him. Did you notice it? They say three things. Number one, we found this fellow perverting the nation. That's an interesting charge to make of a man that did nothing but good deeds, good works, that walked around and opened blinded eyes and healed lame legs and loose tongues that couldn't speak and opened ears that couldn't hear. That's an amazing thing to say about the man that woke up every funeral he ever went to by raising him from the dead. It's an amazing thing to say about a man that fed the multitudes, about a man that had compassion and love and exhibited the love and compassion of God to people. And yet, listen to how, listen to how vile my flesh is. And I ain't saying your flesh, but you can go ahead and read between the lines. Let me just tell you how vile our flesh is. We'd take all the things God's ever done to us, and we'd corrupt them and twist them and treat it like God was mean to us. You know why your flesh does that? You know why my flesh does that? It can't be honest about just how good God's been to us. 
If we were to be honest about all that God has done, we'd have to say, hey, my flesh ain't never done nothing for me, but my Heavenly Father's done everything for me. I thought about this when they were singing the song, He's All I Need, one of my favorite gospel songs. But I sat there and the Holy Ghost smote my heart. And I, I thought, you know, I can't really sing that and be honest. Uh, you say, Preacher, I, I'm scandalized. Why would you say that? I can see the look on your faces. I can tell you all. Preacher, you can't say He's all that I need? No. I, really, if I was going to sing it, I'd have to say He's more than I need. I mean, He ain't just been all I need. He's done more for me than I ever could have expected. I got everything I need plus in my life. He's been more than I need. Hey, God's given me stuff that probably nobody should be privileged and blessed enough to have. Things that people live without and still lift their hand in praise to God over His grace and goodness, and yet God in His mercy and compassion and benevolence has chosen to bless me. He ain't just all I need. Man, He's more than I need. And my flesh, if it's going, if it's going to win the day, it's going to have to tell some lies on Jesus in order to do it. Well, notice what lies they told. First they said, perverting the nation. Two, forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. That's funny for a man that went and sent Peter to go pluck tax money out of a fish's mouth. I mean, that's funny for a man that ain't never, I mean, this is like modern day IRS. Somebody say amen to that. And then it says this, saying that he himself is a king. So think about this threefold charge that they give. This is how our flesh defames him. Number one, this is what they did. They distorted his deeds. They said this fellow was perverting the nation. You know what my answer would be? You look at Israel at that condition at that time in history, they didn't need no help perverting the nation. They already had strayed from true Mosaic worship. They already had defiled their consecration and their separation in the eyes of God. They had already done everything. Listen, they had took the Mosaic form of worship. They had took Orthodox Judaism, gutted it of any meaning and meaning and injected into it their lasciviousness and their license and their greed. I'd say this. He, he pretty much found the nation perverted. Wouldn't you agree with that? And yet the only thing he ever did was seek to cleanse it. Hey, he didn't show up and set up money changing tables. He set up and tore them down. He, 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 didn't, he didn't show up and break the religion of Israel. He showed up and showed its brokenness. But they look at him and say, this man perverteth the nation. In other words, they said all the good things, all the good deeds he's done, they've not been good deeds, they've been bad deeds. And your flesh and mine will have to take and look at the good things God has done in our life and try to twist them and manipulate them and change them to convince us that we are poor, pitiful victims of God's governance. Hey, it makes it worse that victimhood is the highest currency of the land today. And listen, there's people that walk around. I mean, I, I've known Christians, you probably have too, uh, that walk around and oh, they are so pitiful. Oh, they've got such a rough time. Oh, everything is so terrible all the time. I mean, I'd start being embarrassed that that might reflect on, on my opinion of God in people's eyes. If I spent all my time talking about Christianity like it was the most arduous path a man could walk, I might be embarrassed that somebody might look at it and say, well, God must not be a very good God if it's so rough on you. But you see, that's what our flesh does if our will is going to get the right away above His will. Number two, look what they said. They said He perverteth the nation. Number two, they said He forbids to give tribute to Caesar. In, in other words, here's what they were saying. They were saying not only are His deeds bad, but His doctrine is bad. There's a vivid example of this in John's account. Whenever they take Jesus and, and carry Him to Caiaphas' house for the kangaroo court trial, uh, the mock trial that they gave of Him. And uh, the, listen to what John says about that. In John 18, verse 19, it says this, The high priest then asked Jesus of His disciples and of His doctrine. Jesus answered Him, I spake openly to the world. 
I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort. And in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me. By the way, he was pointing around the room. He was saying, some of you have heard what I have taught. You know what I have said. He says, ask uh, them which have heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. Now, you would think that these men would reply with a very witty and astute response to this. You'd think they would look at him and say, well, you may have taught that in public, but in secret you poured poison into the hearts of our fellow Jewish countrymen. That's not what happens. Listen to what it says in verse 22. And when he had thus said, uh, thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? This same thing, by the way, happens to Paul in the book of Acts, but he ain't as good of a Christian. He tries to hit him back, don't he? He smites him back. But uh, the Lord Jesus, he, he kept mastery of his person, of course, and, and he does not smite him back. But you know what's amazing to me? They cannot answer his doctrine, so they abuse him for the sake of it. They cannot point to anything wrong that he has said. So here's what they do. They just try to smack him and buffet him. You know what they're trying to do? They're trying to silence him. They're telling him, you just need to hush. It's not your place to defend yourself. And you say, preacher, that's awful. Yeah, but your flesh and mine does the same thing. Because guess who bears witness? The Bible tells us this, that in John chapter 16, the Lord Jesus spoke about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and said this, that He'll not testify of Himself, but He'll testify of me. He'll not speak of Himself, but He'll speak of me. What happens whenever the Holy Ghost stands up to display and to declare the Word of God as it's preached in our heart and in our life? We grieve Him. We quench Him. We smite Him to get Him to be quiet. Because we don't want to hear what He has to say. I'm saying this to you this morning. We do the same thing. They despised his doctrine. And they said, I don't want to hear what you have to say. The reason they smote him is they didn't have no answer to him. And the reason that we smite the Holy Spirit in our heart by rebuffing him and rejecting him and scorning him and saying, I'll not hear what you have to say. I'll not listen to what you have to say is because we don't want to hear what he has to say. They defamed him. They distorted his deeds. They despised his doctrine. But then notice what they said the last charge. They said, saying that he himself is Christ a king? I would say it this way. When they say a king, there's a lot of kings. But when they say Christ, that is a distinctly spiritual title. And it reflects and refers to the anointed chosen of God. You know what's amazing to me? Uh, all throughout the earthly ministry of Christ, they rejected the notion that the Messiah would be the Son of God. This was a foreign concept to the Jewish mind. This is the reason that Christ talks about, uh, he, he rebukes him and, and says that even your scriptures say that we are sons of God. And, and he tells them that the, uh, David spoke to his Lord saying uh, uh, unto him that would be born from him that he was his Lord. He, he over and over again confirmed and affirmed and supported and defended his deity. And they rejected it. But then when you come down to the crucifixion of Christ, one of the charges they make against him is that he says he's the Christ and the Christ is the Son of God. And therefore, what he's saying is blasphemy. You say, preacher, what does that mean? It means even they knew. It means even they knew that the Messiah was to be the Son of God. They couldn't admit that, but even they knew it to be true. So when they say, hey, he says he's Christ, a king, what they're saying is this. He says when Caesar is king that he in fact is God. And he is a king. The Romans, like many ancient pagan religions, worshipped the Caesar during that time in their national uh, history or empire's history as being a manifestation of God. What they're saying is this. He claims he's God. And that's blasphemy. 
They made this charge explicitly to him a little bit later on in uh, Matthew chapter 26, uh, Matthew's account. The Bible says this, Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. You know what that's amazing? You know what the Holy Ghost says? There's a bunch of liars there, but what none of them stand up and lie. Isn't that amazing that it says that? Have you ever noticed that? It it, it says there was a lot of false witnesses in the room, but none of them have nerve enough to stand up and lie on God. What does that say about your flesh and mine? That my flesh will lie on God. I mean, in that room, Matthew says it, it wasn't for lack of liars. The whole room was full of liars. In fact, everybody in that room was a liar except one. But they couldn't get them to lie. Well, finally, here's what happens. They, they, the Bible says at last came two false witnesses and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, answer thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses, which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. You know what? I'm supposed to be preaching a sermon, but I just can't stop reading Bible and saying stuff about it. If that's preaching, that's fine. I hope that's what you came for. You know what he says there? Even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. But show enough one of these days, you will. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if I told you right now, you wouldn't believe it. But one of these days when you see me coming in power and in glory, every eye will look on Him whom they pierce. And they'll know I'm the Son of God. When He says this, the high priest rent his clothes. Yeah, I'm sure he's real tore up about it. Saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard His blasphemy. They bring this up to Pilate later on in John 19.7. The Jews answered him, answered Pilate, and this is what they said. We have a law, and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. In other words, not only did they distort his deeds and despise his doctrine, but they denied his deity. And you say, preacher, that's awful. Yeah, you ought to see the way my flesh and yours does it. You know why? Because if he's God, listen now, I'm going to say something else about this before we're done. If he's God, guess who's not? You and me. In other words, what we have to do is denigrate the glory and esteem and majesty of who He is. Because it's hard for your flesh to rise up against Him when it's fallen as dead on the ground before Him. We have to make Him seem like less than what He is to make our flesh seem like more than what it is. And so what we'll do is we will adopt and we will engender a casual attitude towards God. That's part of the reason, man, that's part of the problem. This ain't even what I'm preaching on, but I'm going to say it and I'm going to feel good about it. That's part of the problem with modern Christianity. Is it nurtures a casual attitude towards God. Hey, listen, let me tell you something. My God is not some long-haired, hippie, Mountain Dew-drinking, snowboarding, uh, you know, effeminate man. My God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Uh, my God is the one that sits upon the circle of the earth. My God is the one that the cherubs fly around and can't even look upon Him because of how holy He is. And all they can do is cry day and night, holy, holy, holy. That's my God. And that's the God of the Bible. But here's what your flesh has to do. It has to knock Him down a peg to make itself 
feel like more. And that's why it will maintain this sort of casual, non-committal attitude towards God. I don't know that we've ever seen such an epidemic of non-commitment as we look and see in the church today. You know why? That is symptomatic of the casual, irreverent attitude that the flesh has towards the Son of God. And it does that so that it can have authority and right of way in our life. So if they're gonna, if they're gonna deliver him up to their will, they, they've gotta defame him. But now here's a problem. Jesus ain't gonna go quietly. He's not just gonna, I mean, he loves you and I too much to let our flesh win that easily. So here's the second thing they had to do. One, they had to defame him. Number two, they had to detain him. They go and they arrest Jesus. They lock him in chains. They bind him in fetters. And they march him throughout this whole process of condemnation. You know what's amazing behind that? Because this is really what our flesh is trying to do. Uh, first, it's got to criticize and slander God so that it feels better about exalting its will above God's will. And then the next thing it has to do is find a way to bind God in our life. Because here's what the sweet Holy Ghost is going to do. He's going to deal with you when you let your will above God's will. He's going to tell you when you've done it, where you've done it, why you've done it, and why you need to submit your will to His will. So here's what we do. We have to grieve. That's the Bible word. Grieve the Holy Spirit. Another Bible word for it is to quench the Holy Spirit. Now listen, the Holy Spirit lives eternally and invariably inside every born-again believer. There's nothing you can do to get rid of Him. You don't own Him. He owns you. Alright? You are the temple of God. He owns you. So it's not a question of whether the Holy Ghost is going to flee from you or leave you or you're going to lose it or whatever that is. But what it means is that when you when you grieve someone, you are troubling them on the inside. When you quench something, you are smothering it. What you can do is you can silence the witness of the Holy Spirit in your life. And you can uh, you can grieve Him to such a degree. It's not that He ain't talking. It's that you've got all these other voices in your heart and in your mind that are listen, that you're listening to instead of Him. He's still trying to deal with you but you're listening to everything else. And this is what they sought to do symbolically with the Lord Jesus. You know what I find amazing? The Bible, and Luke's account does not really go into it at length. Matthew's account, Mark's account, John's account, they all go into this in greater detail. But there was a custom at the Feast of Passover uh, that they would, as a form of sort of civil pardon, they would uh, pick someone that was undeserving and release that person. By the way, under terms of grace... This ain't my message. Please help help me preach my message, people. Or we're going to be here six hours. Under terms of grace. You say, how'd Barabbas go free? By grace. He didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve it. You say, why why did Barabbas go free? Well, because everybody was gathering around and slaughtering a perfect spotless lamb. And they looked around and said, hey, you know what would be a good thing? If we took that perfect spotless lamb, that blood that was shed for our sin as Jews, and we let that apply to some old rotten, dirty, filthy scoundrel laying down here in the prison house. And Barabbas said, I'm one of those filthy, rotten, dirty, low-down scoundrels. Let the blood stand for me. And he got to go free. And so this was a custom in Israel in that day. They looked as this is part of the sort of festivals and ceremony of, of the Passover. And the Bible says this, that Pilate saw in this an opportunity. He said, this is a way I can have my cake and eat it too. I can condemn him, but also release him. You know, that's what lost people try to do today, right? They, they, try, to, they try to associate him with, with the penalty of their death, but they don't actually want him a part of their life. They want to get him out of their hair. So they'll acknowledge that he died for their sins, and then they'll say, thanks Jesus, see ya. And that's what Pilate was doing. He was saying, that way I can condemn him, 
but I can let him loose. The only problem with that is, see, the Jews weren't happy with that. When he came out and he presents Pilate to them, he says, who, or when he presents Barabbas to them in Jesus, he says, who do you want to be released? And he knows, man, they're getting ready to say, give us Jesus. I mean, Jesus, as bad as he was to them, he's better than Barabbas. But oh, how Pilate underestimated the depravity of the human condition. Because the Bible says in verse 18, they cried out all at once, saying, away with this man. Pilate probably smiled, big old grin. And then they said, and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. You know what I find amazing here? They sought to detain Jesus. Why was that? Or how did that evidence itself? Well, number one, I want you to notice the rebel that they desired. Isn't it amazing that they would rather have this man? He is a murderer. He is a thief and he is a traitor. He has committed sedition. He has sought to overthrow authority. He has no respect for life. He has no respect for ownership and he has no respect for authority. And they say, uh, we'll take him, get Jesus away from us. What a bunch of scoundrels. Well, now wait a minute. Do you know that your flesh likewise has no respect for life? has no respect for ownership because you're bought with a price and has no respect for authority because the natural man, the carnal man, cannot uh, be subject under the law of God. It cannot be. It is not. Neither indeed can it be. It is at enmity with God. You say, boy, our flesh is rotten. Yeah, and yet we choose it above God's will in our life. We'll say, I'd rather do things my way than do things His way. Barabbas here is a picture of our flesh, of our will, and we covet and desire that more than the sweet, precious, sinless Son of God. Notice not only the rebel that they desired, but number two, notice the requirement that they demanded. Verse 20, Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. In other words, he says, maybe I, maybe I misheard. I mean, surely you don't want Barabbas. How about I just turn Jesus loose? I, I found no fault in Let me just turn him loose. You can have Barabbas, and I'll just turn him loose. But they cried. Verse 21, saying, crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, Why? What evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices requiring. Notice that word, require. It was required. It wasn't recommended. It wasn't just desired. It was required that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they Required. I don't know how you define a requirement, but a requirement to me is not a recommendation. It ain't like speed limits and traffic laws. It's a firm, resolute, real rigid thing, right? Some of y'all get that by slow freight here in a few minutes. In other words, it's not something that's optional. It's something that is required. In other words, they could not suffer Christ to go free. He had to be crucified. You know why? They couldn't let him go free because he was just going to go out and start healing people and preaching and doing what he had always done. You know why your flesh cannot coexist and cohabitate friendly with God? Because it is at enmity with God. And there is a choice going to have to be made. Now listen, I understand your flesh and my flesh. It ain't going anywhere on this side of glory. I'm aware of that. Uh, the, Paul said one of these days it will, one of these days our vile body will be made like unto his glorious body. But right now you and I are going to live with our flesh. I understand that. But inasmuch as we seek to give authority in our life to either God or our flesh, they're not going to co-rule. It's going to be one or it's going to be the other. 
Now, if you're like me, it might change from moment to moment. But it does not dismiss the fact that there is no neutral peace table for your flesh and God to sit down. God is not going to sanctify your flesh. God is not going to endorse your flesh. Uh, God is not going to sanitize your flesh. Your flesh and my flesh are vile, wicked, filthy, rotten, and either it's going to be on the cross or it's going to try to put Jesus on the cross. Why is that? Well, notice the, the, the reason they gave. Alright. They said, well, hey, listen, Pilate said, just, just, well, I'll let him go. Don't worry about it. You can have Barabbas. They didn't care nothing about Barabbas. Hey, listen, by the way, religion don't care nothing about the lost man. It is a pawn to be used to fundraise on. That's all it's interested in. God, Jesus, grace, loves a lost person, no matter their brokenness. But you see, you don't hear nothing else about Barabbas. You know why? Because they were done with him. And that's how the flesh is, and that's how religion is. And so they're, they're done with Barabbas, and Pilate says, well, I, let me just release, please just let me release him. There's no reason for me to condemn this innocent man. It says in verse 19 of chapter of John, or book of John, chapter 19, verse 12, from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out. In other words, now they, they have gotten Barabbas. They're still not satisfied. They say, no, you cannot release him. And here's why they say, if thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever makes himself a king speaketh against Caesar. At this point, Pilate knows that he's had. He has no choice now politically. He had a choice personally. But he had no choice politically but to crucify him. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. Listen to what they said. They cried out. They said, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. In, in other words, we see the rebel they desired, the requirement they demanded, but notice the rule that they despised. You know why your flesh and my flesh cannot make a peace treaty with God? Because somebody's going to rule and govern our life. And the flesh is not willing for Christ to sit on the throne. The flesh will not subject itself unto God. And therefore, there's going to have to be a decision made in your life and mine. Your flesh will seek to detain Him, put Him in chains and silence Him. Because He will continually point out the wreck and ruin that your flesh leads to. And so if we're going to, if we're going to yield to the flesh, we're going to have to find a way to get Him quiet. Well, they got their way. I see they sought to, to defame him and they sought to detain him. That still was not enough. So they sought to destroy him. They said, crucify him. It's not enough that he lay in prison. We want him dead. And it's not enough for your flesh and mine to just live peaceably with God and to try to keep separate. Your flesh wants Christ on the cross. Why does your flesh want that? I see three reasons. Let me mention them. I'll be done with my introduction. We'll hurry on. We'll stop. We'll get a water break. We'll eat an energy bar and then we'll come back. All right? No, don't get nervous if you're a visitor. That's a, that's a joke that I'm surprised anybody even still laughs at. John chapter number 19. Listen to what John says. Here they are at the cross. Why did they cru? What did they get out of crucifying him? They they could have Pilate would have chastised him and probably kept him in prison to avoid this situation, but that wasn't good enough. They wanted him dead. Why did they want him dead? Three things. John chapter 19 verse 23 says this. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart. You know what I'm, you know what I'm about to read, don't you, Ken? And also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. 
They said therefore among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. Why'd they crucify him? Why wasn't it good enough just to detain him? Why'd they have to destroy him? Number one, because they wanted his cloak. Now somebody's going to say, Preacher, that's a strange thing to say. Oh, but you understand there is some symbolism in this. And I'm not suggesting it didn't literally happen. Of course it literally happened. There was a literal cloak. But you understand, if you're a student of the Bible, that all through the Bible, that coats, outer garments, are symbolic of people's morality or righteousness. A filthy coat is a picture of unrighteousness. A clean coat is a picture of righteousness. You remember in the Old Testament in the life of Joseph that Joseph, because he was the beloved of his father, he was bestowed with a unique coat of many colors. That symbolizing the righteousness, the abundant righteousness and proprietary relationship of Jesus with his father. Well, here we're told about another unique coat. But this coat is not unique in its colors. It's unique in its composition. Whereas your clothes and my clothes has seams in it, right? You can, some of us, you can see our seams better. But uh has seams in it, right? Well, what are those seams? They are weak points. Chances are, if you tear your clothing, unless you catch it on something sharp, if just under the, the, the weight uh, and, and the pressure of your magnificence, can I say it that way? Is that okay? Uh, of, of, of your blessedness, if your garment tears, it's going to tear its seams. The seams are a weak point. It's a place where two things have been together and the garment is not whole. What is that picture for us that Jesus had a coat that was without seam? It's a picture of His perfect, spotless, seamless righteousness. Now stop and think about it. They wanted Him on the cross. They wanted His cloak. You know, your flesh wants God's forgiveness. Wants God's pardon. Even your flesh don't want to die and go to hell. You want His righteousness... And you want his riches. They divided his garments among themselves. But after that, your flesh says, I'm good. I don't want anything else. This is part of the reason that you have a mass embrace of the prosperity gospel in the world that we live in today. You know why? It appeals to both of those things. That God is here to clean our slate and to fill our bank account and then to leave us alone. You know why that has such massive embrace? Because there ain't nothing spiritual about it. It doesn't involve mortifying the flesh. It doesn't involve crucifying the old man. It doesn't even really involve admitting you're a sinner on your way to hell. And so it's embraced by the world, by droves of unregenerate people that don't know God and don't live in God and have no interest in God. You know why? Because your flesh is okay with that. I'm not talking about their flesh. I'm not talking about Creflo Dollar's flesh. I'm talking about your flesh and my flesh. All it wants out of Jesus is forgive me and fill my bank account, keep my belly full, and I'm good. But here's the problem. If they had gone to him, he would have probably just said, here, you can just have my coat. You know, that's what he did for me. <laughs> I don't know what he did for you, but that's what he did for me. I came to him and said... But Lord, look at this old filthy coat. And he said, yeah, that's a mess. You give me that coat and you take this coat. He would have just given him his coat. But you see, there's something else they wanted. Not only did they want his coat, but they wanted his condescension. Listen to the way that they made fun of him. Matthew 27, verse 39. They that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. They are so carnal, they didn't have a clue of what he had said when he had said that. They were saying, I thought you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. If they could have seen with the eyes of Scripture, they would realize He was destroying the temple and He was going to rebuild it in three days. But they think they're cute. The flesh thinks it's real cute, real clever, real snarky, real smart. And so they said, Thou that destroyest 
the temple and, re- and build us it in three. Save thyself. And then listen. Here they give it away. This is what they say. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. You remember I told you earlier that your flesh denies the deity of Christ. In other words, your flesh has to try to take God down a peg or two. You know why it does that? Because if God's God, you're not God. But if God ain't God, you can convince yourself that you're God. They wanted His condescension. They wanted His humiliation. They wanted the whole world to see that He's not God. Why did they want that? So that they could say, I'm the God of my life. When you are running your life, that's what you're saying. You're saying, I'm the God of my life. I don't have to do what anyone tells me. God don't have no say in my I'm running my life. Because I'm God and not Him. They wanted His condescension. But then, uh, number three, and I'll be done this morning, they wanted His cloak. They wanted His condescension. Number three, they wanted His crown. Listen to how it goes on. I, the, the regular folk walk by and they say, if you're really the Son of God, come down from that cross. But now listen, the chief priests also mocked Him. And the scribes and the elders. And this is what they said, Matthew 27, 42. He saved others, Himself He cannot save. Listen, if He be the King of Israel... Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. You make no mistake, part of the reason that the Sanhedrin rejected the Messiah was because all of their political power was vested in the power vacuum of there being no king. If the Messiah ascended the throne... See, Moses had sort of started that Sanhedrin thing because he as a finite, feeble human being, he could not issue judgment over all of Israel on his own. So uh, his father-in-law, uh, the Midianite, uh, Jethro... I love that name, Jethro. Y'all name your child that. Anybody with child, name them Jethro. I, I, they won't like it, but I'll be pleased with it. Jethro, the Midianite, he goes and he says, Now listen... You can't handle this all on your own. You don't have the power and ability and and, and energy and stamina to judge all of Israel. So appoint 70 elders and they will assist you in that. Here's the only problem. Moses was a pretty cool dude, but he was not the Messiah. He was not God in the flesh. He was not the incarnate Son of God. And if Jesus had ascended to the throne in Israel, guess who would have been out of a job? The Sanhedrin. No need for him anymore. And that's part of the reason that they recoiled against the notion that the king had come. They knew all those promises about bringing in everlasting righteousness. And what is their job if there's a king that can bring in everlasting righteousness? So they said, we're going to work ourselves out of a job if we accept this Messiah. So when they saw him die, they gloated over him. And they said, I thought you said you as a king, but who's really running Israel? Wicked, isn't it? You know what your flesh does in mind, don't you? It says, you can't be king because I'm king in this body. I'm king in this life. I'm king in this heart. If you're really king, come down from the cross. The problem is, hey, listen, we're sitting on His throne. If He's going to come down from the cross, we're going to have to get up off the throne first. We're going to have to be willing to say, you're right, Lord, and I'm wrong, and get up and give Him His place on the throne of our heart and our life if we seek Him to have His will and way. I'm not going to preach this, but I got it in my notes and I might as well read it. What would have happened if they had delivered themselves up to Jesus' will? What would Jesus have done with them? I just jotted these down. Number one, His will was to give them pardon. You know what He said? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. His will was to give them protection. You remember He said, He wept over Jerusalem and He he said this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chicks under her wings, and ye would not. There wouldn't have been no Roman invasion. 
had they received Him as Messiah. He, his will was to give them provision. You remember whenever the uh, 5,000, more than 5,000, 5,000 men alone are weary out on the countryside. And this is what Jesus says, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. He would have provided for them. His will was to give them His providential guidance. He said to His disciples, all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. He didn't keep no secrets. His will, listen, was to give them peace. In Luke 19, when he was come near, he beheld the city Jerusalem and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. I'm saying this, they would have been a lot better off if they had delivered their will up to Jesus instead of delivering Jesus up to their will. Child of God, listen this morning. Your life will never be better than the day you deliver your will up to Him. And your life will never, never make a more devastating mistake than for you to take Jesus, take Him off the throne of your life, put Him back on the cross, and say, I'm going to rule my life. I'm going to govern myself. That leads only to destruction and sorrow and heartache. But you have a choice to make today. Somebody's sitting on that throne. The question is who it is this morning. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. And you know, around here, you don't have to wait for the first note to be played. God probably dealt with you. Uh, He dealt with me. I wonder if there's some area of your life. It may be your life in totality, but it may not even be. It may be that most of your life you've surrendered unto Him, but there's some area, something that God's dealing with you about. Why don't you find a place at this altar and say, Lord, not my will, but Thy will be done. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.